So I want to tell you guys, guys a story this morning, a little bit of a story. When Vince and I first got married, um, we've been married about 21 years now, and when we first got married, I had only been 18 for about three months. So I was just a little baby. Um, but I came into our marriage carrying a lot of baggage, as one does. Um, but I, in particular, had experienced some pretty significant abuse in my childhood, and so I had some trauma, I had some stuff that was going on that was, was really challenging. Um, I had a lot of struggles that were related to my response to that abuse in my life. And then our relationship, because I was so young, and for a variety of other reasons that I won't go into this morning, but uh, my parents were really not thrilled with our relationship at the time. Like, we had a, a pretty severe falling out over the whole thing. And so that just, you know, layered something else on the top of what I was already... I mean, I had some pretty spectacular set of luggage that I carried into our marriage. And I'm, I'm saying all that stuff because I want to I wanna set up for you guys the idea that when we got married... Um, I was pretty naive. I had a lot of expectations. Like I was coming out of this like ridiculously painful context and situation and I was coming into marriage with expectations that were were pretty intense, pretty intense. And I thought that this relationship was going to be the thing that fixed a lot of what I saw as being wrong in my life. And that's really important for what we're going to talk about. So Vince understood me really in a way that no one else ever had and I had not really experienced before. He, he just like, you know how we say, he just got me. He got me. We got each other. And so I had every expectation that that understanding would always be complete and that it would always be constant. Uh, Vince said nice things about me that made me feel good about myself. And I hadn't had a lot of that before that time. So I had every expectation that he would always, always be affirming and that he would know when I was feeling insecure and he would happily reassure me for as long as it took for me to feel better. That was my expectation. Uh, when we were dating, he wanted to spend as much time with me as he possibly could when he could get away for the weekend. He was in the military. He was le living out of state at the time from where I was. He'd come in on leave for the weekend, and we would spend every minute we possibly could steal away together. It was amazing. After we got married, I had every expectation that we would continue to spend every waking minute joined at the hip and that I would never be lonely again. I cannot recall a single, I really can't, I thought about this really hard, you guys. I cannot recall during our, you know, courtship leading up to our marriage, a single hurtful thing that Vince said to me. And I tried really hard to think of something, but I couldn't. I couldn't, re couldn't remember a single thing he said that was hurtful to me leading up to our marriage. Other people in my life had let me down in that area a lot. But I had every expectation that Vince would never hurt me or disappoint me. And I really, really, I really, really thought that was going to be the case. I'd never be misunderstood or hurt or lonely again. And he would hand out an endless supply of compliments like, 
the world's most sensitive vending machine. The poor man. <laughs> he had no idea. <laughs> because the other thing that I expected when we got married was that, of course, obviously, that he could read my mind. And so he would just know all of these things that I was thinking and all of these things that I expected. <sighs> well, if you know Vince, you know that he, he is not the kind of person that backs down from a challenge. Okay, so he tried really hard. He tried really hard to live up to my expectations that were largely, largely unexpressed and unspoken. But about three years into our marriage, you can imagine that things uh, kind of came to a tipping point with all of my expectations. The weight of my emotional demands that I was placing on him, they really, they were heavy and they were wearing us both out. Like, both of us were just frustrated, exhausted, and it was hard. But luckily, even though, you know, we didn't know a ton, we knew that it was okay to ask for help when you need it. And so we approached our pastor at the time and talked to him about getting some counseling, getting some help, you know, because we knew that this was not something that we were making much progress sorting out on our own. So he worked through some resources with Vince and I together. He did that. We had some really helpful tools that he gave us just for our relationship together. But for me, he recommended a teaching series um, that it's since it's become something of a classic in the vineyard. It's called The Gospel of Wholeness. And it just addresses some basic principles from the Bible about how we can become healthy disciples, how we can be imitators of Jesus. So I took that set of cassette tapes, because it was a little bit ago, cassette tapes. I took them home, and then I started listening to them. It turns out that Wade, who was our pastor at the time, was a pretty perceptive guy. Because... At the very core of what was eating at me and what was causing all of this turmoil in our marriage and all of this trouble, um, it, it really had very, very little to do with Vince. Like, very little at all. I mean, he's not perfect or anything, but, you know, most of this stuff, I had to own it. What I came to understand, that in the ways that I talked about earlier, I had unknowingly made the mistake of trying to use my husband, who is a human being. He's my favorite human being, okay? And he's an amazing human being. But he's still just a human being. And I had tried to use my husband to get things that I needed that are meant to come from God. That are ultimately only able to be provided by God. Things like value and worth Security, peace, hope, identity. Those are things that can only come from God. And yet we as human beings, we seem to have a huge amount of trouble. It's not just me. I've talked to lots of people over the years. We have a huge amount of trouble getting away from our own tendency to try to get these things just about anywhere else. It's part of our human condition, I think. Part of something that we'll struggle with. 
So listen to what God said through the prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 2, verse 13. He said, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. The imagery is powerful there. God is the spring of living water, the very source of our life. And we go around with our little shovels digging these holes in the dirt that are broken wells. They're empty wells. And just like in my case, just like what I described earlier, the most likely suspects for empty wells are often some of the really good, the best things in our life. My marriage is a good thing. It has always been a good thing. Relationship and companionship, support from another human being that's promised to love you no matter what. That's an amazing, good, good thing. That's a gift from God for us to enjoy. The problem occurs when we take those very good things and we turn them into those empty wells. Or to use another biblical term for that concept, we make them into idols. Anything can be an empty well. Anything. A job, for instance. A job is a very good thing to have. A job is a very helpful thing to have. Money is nice to pay bills and buy food and get things that you need. Doing a good job at our job is honorable. And it's important. It's important to live our lives with excellence. Finding our sense of identity and value and worth in a job and working an excessive amount of hours because it gives us a sense of purpose that the rest of our life is lacking, that would be a dangerous spot to be in. Might be an empty well. Regardless of our level of professional success, we are valuable because God calls us valuable. We have purpose because we are part of his kingdom. And if we try to find our value and our purpose in a job, that's what makes it an empty well. So some other things besides relationships and work that can be empty wells and can include our appearance... Material possessions are a pretty obvious one. Hobbies, knowledge, pursuing, you know, education could be one. Even church or service work. You know, those of us in vocational ministry have to really guard against using what we do as the thing that makes us feel like we have purpose, worth, and value. An empty well can be anything, anything at all, in which we try to find our identity outside of Jesus. If you've been here any time at all during the last three weeks, you probably know that we're in the middle of a sermon series called Hard Conversations. And you might even have guessed where I might be going with this. 
Affirmation number four in our series on hard conversations says this, we can find our identity in Christ, not in our belief systems. We can find our identity in Christ, not in our belief systems. Anything, anything at all in which we try to find value, purpose, or security apart from Christ is an empty well. A broken cistern that can hold no water. It's empty now and it's always going to be empty. And as difficult as it is for us to admit sometimes, some of our most dearly held beliefs and opinions can become idols in our lives. They can become empty wells. Again, the point is not, it's not, it's not, it's not. Don't misunderstand me. The point is not that we should not have these things. We should have beliefs and opinions, systems with which we understand the world. The point is that when these beliefs and these opinions creep into a spot in our lives where we are finding our identity and our value from them instead of from Jesus, we'll find that just like with any other empty well or idol, we will be at best unsatisfied and ultimately frustrated and disappointed because it cannot give us what we are looking for. It cannot. Now, oftentimes we don't become aware of where we've made an empty well until it's challenged. Until it's challenged, either directly or indirectly. And it's usually, it's, it's often like our reaction It's a reaction to something that we have to the challenge that's kind of intense and sometimes maybe even this overreaction to a situation. And that gives us a clue. It's like a clue, a little red flag that there's something that's going on underneath the surface. In Gospel of Wholeness, Danny Meyer, the pastor that authored the teaching, Um, He used an analogy that I find really practical, and I've used it lots of times over the years, and Vince and I have have found it helpful um, to help identify some of the areas where we might be operating out of an empty well. Okay, so who who has fished here, like ever in your life? Who, Who has gone fishing at least once with a bobber? Everybody? Okay. So when you fish, sometimes you use what's called a bobber, and it's like this little floaty thing, and it's attached to the line above the hook, and it sits on the surface. And sometimes a bobber's even called, um, some fishermen refer to it as an indicator. It's an indicator. And if you've ever fished this way, you know that when something gets hooked under the water, the bobber... is what lets you know what's happening underneath the surface because you can't really see what's going on down there. And so it's, it's the bobber that's bobbing. It's the bend of the fishing pole that gives you that indication. It's that clue that there's something that's happening that you can't see. And depending on the action on the pole, top side, that's how you can know just how big that thing that you've hooked into really is. So it works that way in our spiritual and our emotional lives as well. It's, it's kind of like that too, or at least I've found that to be the case. We can have these spectacular reactions. I mean, just 
intense that give us a clue about something that's going on under the surface. And it is always a good idea, always, always, always a good idea to pay attention to those reactions, to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us what is it that's really going on here. Why does my level of anger not quite match this minor inconvenience? Maybe this is a relatively small thing, but I've just exploded as though the whole world is ending. So that's an indicator that my emotion doesn't match the situation. So I want to find out what's causing that bend in the fishing pole. The Holy Spirit is, among other things, a teacher and a counselor, and he is well able to help us understand what those fishing pole moments that are trying to trip us up might be indicating as far as empty wells that we have below the surface. But the good news is when we're aware of this tendency and with God's help, we can orient our hearts toward him and he is the source of living water, a well that never runs dry. And when we do that, we can expect a few pretty good, good things to happen when we do that. Number one, we can listen because our belief system doesn't define our identity. Jesus does. We can listen. When we allow our belief system to define our identity, it is very difficult. Very difficult and sometimes nearly impossible to listen to anything that challenges it. I have to tell you guys, it's pretty much with few, few exceptions. The... Not, not like... Not like posts that you guys make, but like on Facebook, public posts where I see strangers interacting with each other, public posts, with very few exceptions, if I make the mistake of like diving into the comment section of those, it just breaks my heart. It hurts my heart. I've had experiences where it brought me to tears. Just, it's just so awful there. It's like it's like the scum at the bottom of the scum on the bottom of a pond. It's, it's just awful. It hurts my heart. I think it hurts Jesus' heart too. I really do. It's so bad. The way people treat each other and talk to each other. So my sister shared something really sad this week um, on Facebook. Um, it was from an online film reviewer of all things. Like, I'm not familiar with the person because my sister, you know, her, her interests in entertainment are a little bit different than mine. And so I don't necessarily follow all the same people that she does. But um, this was an online film critic of some sort. And she shared this post that he had made. Um, apparently, recently, he'd published a review online of his uh, opinion of the new Star Wars movie that's come out. It's called Solo. I guess it's the story of, of Han Solo and how he came to be, you know, so important in the story and whatever. And I love Star Wars. I think it's pretty cool. But, so I'll be going to see that. Anyway, this guy published his, his review of the movie, and he said that he liked it. Like, he had fun at the movie. He enjoyed the movie. He thought it was, he thought it was a good show. So he published his review of a movie. A movie. He said that he expected that there would be some disagreement because, you know, Star Wars fans can get pretty passionate about their 
you know, their theories and their, and their thoughts and their opinions. So he figured that there would be some agreement with him, there'd be some disagreement, but that the, the, the conversation that happened after would be like enjoyable and it would be stimulating and that would be fun as well. And that would be another part of the experience of, of having seen the film and sharing the experience with others is that they could, they could discuss and debate and there would be discourse. So this is not, you know, some guy that's super sensitive and doesn't want anybody to disagree with him. He thinks that's part of the fun, right? We might not typically think of this kind of context as being a hard conversation, but apparently for some people it was. Because the reason that he made this new post that my sister shared that I then saw was because he wanted to express his sadness over the really, I mean, just, I don't even know the words to use, like vile and cruel and crude response to his initial post had been. The personal nature of the comments and just the the toxic nature of the comments. A lot of them were so shocking and so profane that I couldn't even bring myself to share like an edited version with you guys because I would have, you know, put some things in your head. I don't want to be responsible for them being there. But I'll just, I'll share one of the, actually the milder ones just so you can kind of get the idea. This is one of the milder ones. One person said, I hope your mother dies of cancer. So you'll have to go to the funeral and you'll have less time to spread your solo BS. Wow. Seriously? Okay, first of all, first of all, it's not usually my style, but I'm going to get my preach on for a minute. If you talk to people that way, if that is the way that you speak to people online or in person, stop it right now. Stop. That's unacceptable. There's no situation in which that is an acceptable thing to say to another human being. So stop it. I don't think you guys do that, but I think you guys do that. No matter what. No matter what. Oh, my goodness. <sighs> Taking a deep breath. Beyond that. Beyond that. What is the root of that? What on earth leads a person to speak to another human being that way? Other than the, you know, perceived an anonymity of the internet that, you know, makes us all very brave behind our keyboards and things like that. But, but what's, what's the root? Do you think that maybe that person might be caught up a little bit in an empty well of finding identity and value in a belief system that's related to their form of entertainment? Just a little bit? So much so that they can't see or hear a contrary opinion expressed without it stirring up one awful Holy heck of a fishing pole moment. I've seen similar dynamics surrounding a variety of topics. Sports teams, music, uh, stories. One of my least favorite things is even locally, like stories of people that have been convicted of a crime. Don't go in that comment section. It's dark in there, y'all. 
Of course, the hardest conversations, religion and politics. Things that are near and dear to our hearts. Things that are near and dear to my heart. So I always want to make sure I just take that that moment to say, I'm passionate about things. It's okay if you're passionate about things. We're supposed to be passionate about things that matter in this life. It's easy. It's easy to get stirred up and to lash out. But hasn't God called us as believers to handle things differently than that? Doesn't he invite us into a better way? In James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, we read this. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Why? Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Listening should be our default. Even when things we care about are challenged. The challenge doesn't change who we are. And it doesn't change how God sees us. And it doesn't change the truth. The challenge is not a threat. So we can just relax. We really can. We can listen without defensiveness. Because we know that Jesus is the source of our identity. And he is well able to be our defender. He is well able. Number two, we can learn because our belief system doesn't define our identity. Jesus does. We can learn. We can learn from other people. Did you know that every single person you ever meet will know something that you don't? Every single person. If you haven't heard Bob's message from this series on how the Holy Spirit creates unity, I would really encourage you to go back online and listen. Um, Our website, vineyardrala.org, we've got a messages page. That's all up to date this week. Really encourage you to go back and listen to Bob's message if you didn't get a chance to hear it. Um, He did a beautiful job of just explaining how we're meant to appreciate and learn from and know one another. And I really love how he pointed out that oftentimes in the church, we substitute uniformity, everybody having to be the same about everything. We substitute uniformity for unity, and it's a a poor counterfeit. It's a poor counterfeit. Uniformity is, is much more comfortable, and it's much easier to, like, set up a standard of rules and regulations, and everybody just has to fall in line. It's way easier. That's why it happens. But it's also completely unbiblical. Completely. Speaking metaphorically about the church, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 18, In fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. 
And skipping down to verse 25 for the sake of time, there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for one another. We can learn from each other. We can learn from each other when we understand that our differences are not weaknesses. They are our strengths. Our identity is not threatened by diversity. It's made better. It's made richer. God designed it to work this way. All the parts that are different, learning how to work together, building unity, understanding one another. That's the plan. That's the design. We can learn because we know that our identity doesn't come from our belief systems. It comes from Jesus. And number three, we can love because we understand that our identity comes from Jesus and not from our belief systems. When we are secure in the knowledge that Jesus is the one that chose us, he loved us first, and he is the one who gives us our worth and our value and our purpose, then we are set free. We're set free from the need to earn that and defend it and protect it. The identity is secure. We are set free from that striving And with that freedom comes space, the space to love each other and to do that well. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. You're called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, which just means doing whatever we want. We're not free so we can do whatever we want. Why are we free? Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law, all of it, the whole shebang, is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the one thing. So reading those words... Love your neighbor as yourself. I just want to finish by reflecting on the parable that Jesus told to illustrate this concept of loving your neighbor. It's found in Luke chapter 10, and we're probably all pretty familiar with this story. So there's a Jewish guy that's traveling down a dangerous road. And it's a dangerous road, and so he gets robbed He gets beaten, and he gets left for dead in the ditch. A Jewish priest and a Jewish Levite, which was another kind of a person that had duties serving in the temple. So those guys, they just, they pass him by. They like cross to the other side of the road and leave him. They don't stop to help. And then along comes a Samaritan which is a person that is just about as culturally and religiously different, other, or divided from an Israelite as one could be at the time. And that's the guy that stops and helps, saves, saves the guy that got robbed, pays for everything, makes sure he's okay, takes care of it. Thus demonstrating that neighbors come in all kinds And that we should try to be one to everybody, no matter how different they are from us. 
So that's the story of the Good Samaritan, basically. But today, I'm not thinking about the Samaritan. I'm thinking about the priest and I'm thinking about the Levite. I think these men are a perfect example of the thing that we're talking about today. Why didn't they stop? Why didn't they stop? The reasons that they didn't stop had a lot to do with their belief system. There were regulations about touching things that were unclean, especially dead things and blood. Like that was a big deal in the Old Testament. They would be ceremonially unclean and they would be unable to perform their duties in the temple. They would be disqualified because they had to do some rituals to get themselves, you know, back up to back up to par. So they would have been disqualified from performing their duties in the temple. But I read something interesting in a commentary this week, and I'm just going to throw it out there as kind of an aside. It specifies in the story, if you look closely at it, that the man that got robbed and also the priest and the Levite, they were traveling away from Jerusalem. They were leaving the city. And so it was likely we could draw the conclusion that they had actually kind of like finished up their their work for the day at the temple and they were headed maybe home. We could, we could think about that. Their belief system was such a part of their identity. That they could leave the worship of the God that gave the law without connecting with his heart without connecting of the heart with the heart of the person that had given them those rules in the first place. And they left their brother alone to die in the dirt because they were afraid to be unclean. There's not much nuance in this particular story. Jesus' meaning is right on top of the surface. Really plain. Who do we want to be in this world? Who do I want to be? Who do you want to be in this world? Do we want to be so insecure and so afraid, so enslaved? That sounds like such a strong word, but it's, it's the right word. Enslaved by our systems of belief. That we cross the road when we see someone in need that we just don't really want to mess with. Or do we want to be the type of human being who says, nope, I don't care how different you are from me. I don't care. I don't care how different you are. I don't care how hard you are to talk to. I don't care how much of a challenge it is to the things that I hold dear. I can reach out my hand. I can. Because I know that my identity comes from Jesus. And because that is true... Wherever my belief system, listen guys, wherever my belief system seems to be at odds with the gospel of the good news of his love for this world and every single person in it, where my belief system seems to be at odds with the gospel, the gospel has to win. Jesus has to win. 
because he, like his father, is the source of living water. The well that never runs dry and allows us to drink and never to be thirsty. And so he's calling us today. He's calling each one of us. Will we abandon, will we abandon our empty wells, our broken cisterns that hold no water, no matter what they are, no matter what they are? And will we allow him to set us free? Free to listen, free to learn, and free to love every person that we come in contact with everywhere in this world. That's the challenge.